0: This is CUNY TV, the City University of New York. City University Television presents
1: the American Theatre Wing Seminars. working in the theatre. This seminar,
2: Producing.
3: Welcome to the american theater wing seminars on working in the theater these seminars are coming to you from the graduate center at the city university of new york located on 42nd street and heart of times square where broadway off off broadway and off broadway all meet to bring the magic of theater there is nothing like it and the american theater wing which established the Antoinette perry tony awards to uh, reward the achievement of excellence in the theater is perhaps best known for that award but it is more than that the wing is an all-year-round organization and it is perhaps one of the longest runs devoted to serving the community through the theater most of our programs do just that they address themselves to the needs of the community we have a hospital show program in which we bring professionals and Broadway shows and off-Broadway shows into hospitals, so that those who can't get out get to see theatre. We also have Saturday Theatre for Children, which is a wonderful program. It's on, as it says, Saturday mornings, and it's right in the public schools. The children line up, and they pay to go to see a show. No child has ever turned away. But in that way, we hope and have already realized that we have done just what we've wanted to do that is that children do grow up learning to buy a ticket and go to a broadway show or an off-broadway show we're instilling the need for theater in these children the need not to just go to the theater on a hospital on a very special occasion um, perhaps for a birthday or an anniversary but to go to the theater as a need as part of their lives and that's the way theater should be These seminars which are coming to you are an outgrowth of the Wings School. We've had uh, a panel discussion on the performers, we've had one on the playwright and directors, and now we turn our attention to the production, the producers of Spoils of War. This is what makes it all come about, the people who are serious, who are interested in the theatre, and are making the theater come alive. To co-chair this is Jean Dalrymple, who is a member of the board of the American Theater Wing, has done practically everything that one can do or should do in the theater to learn the trades of the theater, and Ed Wilson, who is drama critic of the Wall Street Journal and director of the theater education here at CUNY. I'm going to turn our seminars over to them immediately, and they will, in turn, introduce the panel. Gene, would you go first, or Ed, whichever you have decided. Ed, on. Ed, right. Ed would you start? Right. Thank, Thank you for being here. Thank
2: you very much. Uh, this is a di- distinguished panel, and I will begin with the person on my far right, uh, the co-partner in a theatrical yeah. management concern, uh, G- Tyler Gatch- Gatchell and Peter Newfeld. Peter has actually managed over 70 shows in New York. He has been the general manager of Spoils of War and Precious Sun, Spoils of War being the play we're going to talk about today. He is the executive producer of Cats, Starlight Express, Evita, Chess, and as I say a total of nearly 70, Peter Newfell. <laughs> Just to my right, the person who, with her partner, Carol Rothman had the really fascinating and exciting idea in 1979 of starting a theater called the Second Stage Theater that is dedicated to uh, giving a second chance to productions that had been done before and they felt could be done in an exciting way again. They've done that with plays by Lanford Wilson, Serenading Louie, Lemon Sky, and they're about to do another one uh, by Lanford Wilson. Uh, They have also done plays by Michael Weller, and the play we're going to talk about today is one that they decided to commission, a new play. They've begun doing that some, and they've done that successfully with plays uh, by people like Tina Howe, particularly painting churches. Uh, I'm pleased to introduce Robin Goodman. Thank you.
4: At my far left is a brother of mine. He's a brother in the Association of Theatrical Press Agents and Managers. And we've been members together for many, many years. He's uh, one of the best press agents in the city, and he has a very large office with lots of people, wonderful people working with him. And at the present time, he's not only the press agent for the current show that we're discussing, but he also is, is representing Into the Woods, 42nd Street, and Michael Feinstein. And he does wonderful, wonderful work. Josh Ellis. (laughs) And next to him is a very fine lawyer who is with one of the greatest law firms in the city, uh, and uh, whose members I have known. Several of them are no longer with us, but were very good friends of mine. (laughs) And uh, we were discussing wills and such things, and the fact that lawyers never – read what they have to sign (laughs) and he's a very charming man his name is john brailio and right here is the big boss uh, david marish who comes down from toronto i knew his father very well and i i knew everybody's father very well He's the producer for the, uh, the Royal Alexandra Theatre in Toronto, which is a beautiful theatre. By the way, the audiences in Toronto are wonderful. I played there when, in my youth, and I used to love to go to Toronto, because <coughs> they laughed and they applauded. They were wonderful. Mr. Merisch. <coughs> David Marish. And I would like to, uh, to ask uh, you how you got the idea to start your wonderful company. Well.
5: Uh, I was an actress, and my partner Carol Rothman was a director. And we'd gotten to a point in our lives where we felt like taking our careers in our own hands. And it was, especially for her, it was very difficult for a woman director to get work in New York. And I unfortunately don't think that's changed very much, I think it's still true. and. Um, Since I fixed her up with the man that she married four months later, we decided we were in it for life together. So we met and talked about what was going on in the American theatre. At the time, there was a great proliferation of off-off-Broadway theatres. There was over 200, unlike now. And everyone was doing new plays. And we eventually, out of our talks over a couple of months, came up with the idea of keeping contemporary literature alive. That there was no one in the city dedicated to doing plays of the last ten years that, for some reason or another, hadn't worked in their first incarnation doing them again, giving them a different kind of production, hopefully a better production, a new look, or a longer run. So, er, ergo, the second stage.
4: Very good. Thank what you. What was your first show that you did? Oh,
5: Trial by Fire, which should have been called. <laughs>
4: <laughs> the very first
5: play we did was called The Short Changed Review. The second play we did was Split by Michael Weller, actually. Oh, well. uh, starring Brooke Adams and John Hurd, which was a tremendous success and was closed by Actors' Equity right after the reviews came out, so
4: (laughs) (laughs) we had a pity.
2: Yes. Today we're going to talk about the process of producing a play, and uh, the play we're talking about is Spoils of War, and we're going to go through the whole process, uh, all the legal work, the publicity, the producing, the management and everything, but it all started with you and your theatre, so perhaps you could tell us the genesis of Spoils of War in terms of second stage. Sure.
5: I don't want to dominate this whole thing. <laughs> um, well, Michael Weller – They won't let you. They won't <laughs> let me. Thank you. Um, Michael Weller, obviously, was the part of our company from the very beginning. He's on our Board of Advisors. He, he's a literary advisor. So we've had a tremendous commitment to him, and he had a bad experience on a play in New York. And he had said to us a couple of years ago, he was never going to open a play in New York again. He was only going to do it in the regional theaters. And Carol and I thought about this. and we th- and Also, at the same time, we were getting to a point where we had relationships with writers. We had done their previous plays, and we didn't want to say, take your new plays elsewhere and have them fail, and then we'll do them in a couple of years. So (laughs) out of that came this idea of an artist in perspective for Michael Weller. We said, well, Mike, if you're afraid of having a play open in New York, how about three? (laughs) <laughs> which is kind of crazy, but we said, why don't we do a perspective of your work? Why don't we do two of your plays that have been done before and haven't been seen for a while, Moon Children and Loose Ends, and why don't we commission a new work from you? So that's what we did. We got funds from the NEA. We got help from the Fund for New American Plays at American Express uh, that underwrote the commission, and uh, we did it as the third play in a series of Michael Weller plays.
2: And it was well-received. It was well-received, yes. And where Now, where does the next link in the chain come is that david is that you or is it who is who is the next uh, what's where does the next step come in
0: well i think that we're probably the next step yes uh i had a specific need which is that we own two theaters and we want them to always be open
2: uh, now, just so we back up a little bit, is that the, you're talking about the Old Vic in London and the, and the Royal, Royal Alexandra in Toronto, so yes.
0: And we bought the Royal Alexandra back in 1962, took a year to renovate it. And it's virtually been open since then, without any dark time. We occasionally fix seats for a week, but we're really we run 52 weeks a year. Yeah. And in the process of doing that, this was one of the great historical roadhouses that would take shows. That were successful in New York or successful in London and take the Turing company. And about three years ago, we decided it would be more challenging for us, but perhaps more more rewarding in terms of personal satisfaction if we could do some of the plays ourselves and do our own productions. And we have a subscription season of seven shows and every show runs six weeks. But with the setup weeks and with our Christmas pantomime, that takes up the whole year. So, we w- were now in our second year of producing, and I was learning to live dangerously. <laughs> and uh, there, there were several things that we w- were doing that was living dangerously. Usually, we plan far ahead. But in the theatre, if you plan far ahead, you can't find the actors that you want to have in your plays, because they, the economics of theatre are such... Did they wait till the last moment, because they may get a movie, or they may get, you know, something? And so, uh, I had several choices of what I could have put into that one space that I was waiting with, and I kept waiting for something else. And and the choices were satisfactory, but they weren't exciting. Two years earlier, I had had a, con- uh, a conversation with Kate Nelligan, and I said, uh, Kate, i you've never been seen here in Canada, yet it was your home. We'd very much like to do something with you." And she said, well, we have to watch for something. But she didn't say anything about Spoils of War. What happened was that because she was in it, it brought our attention to the play. Now, the fact that Kate was in it by itself wasn't enough, because when you do a new play, what you have to start with is really the writing, not the actors or the director. But you have to have a book that you feel some confidence in and that you're attached to. Then you have to hope that you can assemble all the other elements that will support that. And uh, Kate brought us our attention by being in this play to the work, and we, uh, we liked it. Uh, Did you
2: come down from Toronto to see it while it was running at second stage?
0: I, I had a show opening in London, and Ernie Schwartz <coughs> in our office came down and saw it first, because I didn't want to wait. And then he came back and he said, "Look, I'm not going to say anything. <laughs> I think you should see this, though. I think it's worth the trip. And and that's my recommendation. And then see what you think." And uh, I came down and I was pretty excited. And I came with someone else from the office, and uh, uh, we both liked the play. Uh, Brian Sewell, who I also work with, and and we said this is the play we'd like to do. And uh, bonuses that we also would like to have Kate in it. And so, here we have a play that we like, and an actress that we want to work with.
2: Now, how did the dynamics work now, in terms of – because this is a subject I think we can talk about profitably a little later on, that I know John Brelio knows a lot about, which is the interaction between the not-for-profit theatre, which Second Stage is, and the commercial theatre, which you represent. How did you all work out the dynamics of the setting up the production then, and, and the participation and so forth? Well, You're smiling. Well,
5: <laughs> because oh, it was so easy, <laughs> well, that's <laughs> good. Well,
0: that's good. Well, m- maybe Robin should answer that, but before we go to that, there's, there's another process that's even more important, which is that because most sm- new plays now tend to start in hundred-seat theatres, the big question that we were faced with is, did we believe that this play could move from 108 seats to 1,500 seats in the Royal Royal Alexandra. The Royal Alexandra has 1,500 seats and 52,000 subscribers. (laughs) So we knew that we had an audience (laughs) to play in front of, and would have the opportunity of staying still for six weeks and working with an audience on a new play. But we also knew that we can't abuse that audience, because that audience is what allows us to do the things that we do. So, we we had to say, can it make that transition? And once we faced that question, then we were into mechanics, and I think…
5: At the time, there were quite a few producers approaching the second stage with interest in the play, and I think what David had, besides charm and and uh, uh, being a lovely person, who we liked very much, was great faith in the play as it was, with the artistic team, with the director, with the, um, most of the designers, <laughs> not all of them. Uh, but he had faith in what we were trying to do, and what we wanted to move on. And we've had that trouble in the past with Coastal Disturbances, for instance. Uh, several Broadway producers wanted to move it, but they wanted to put Rob Lowe and Demi Moore in it. They didn't want to keep our company, you know. And we said we turned them down, and it ended up with a producer who, at Circle in the Square, where they believed in the, in the cast we had already. We had a similar problem on this show, and David really had faith in the play, and in Austin Pendleton, the director, and he really loved it. His love for the play was contagious, and, and so we chose him, of course. Uh, and also, he wanted to move quickly, which was important to us. He had a place to do it, so we, Michael could work on the script, which it needed. Uh, Michael had to, did a major rewrite on the script, and he gave us time to do that, and then we went into rehearsal in August, after closing in June with the new script, and uh, w- had the luxury of playing it for six weeks in Toronto, which was a big plus,
2: before coming into Broadway. How did – when did you first uh, get a, a reading on how it would play in that larger space? With the first preview or something, with that uh, fifteen-hundred-seat house? Y-
0: yes, I think, I think so. I mean, you, you, you can guess, but you never know what, how the audience is going to respond. But they responded very favourably. and, and it worked on word of mouth, and, uh, because although we have this big base, we still have another eighteen, twenty thousand seats to sell. So we know whether or not they're responding to the play. It's, it's a play that we hope we've, we've retained the complexity of, and uh, so it's not one that you're going to get instant reaction, and especially when you, when you make Broadway your final, final goal. If you say Broadway's your final goal, then anything to the day of opening is a work in progress. Did and you all
2: was – that, was that the idea all along, that it was really headed for Broadway and that the Toronto engagement was which, part of a,
0: of a process? A process, absolutely. That, we felt that in, 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 in the season that we could take one place in that season <coughs> and, and have this goal for a new work. And, and w- I hope that uh, our experience of that is that, that we'll continue to do that.
5: I don't feel that every play is a Broadway play, and I think the reason that David and I agreed that it could play a big house was because it's a family play. It's something that everyone can relate to. It's not elitist, it's not about a certain class of people or a certain thing. It's about emotions, about family, and I think on that level that everyone can relate to it.
3: How much did the play have to be opened up in order to go from the small to the large house?
5: Uh, the play itself, I, I, I think what changed the most was the set, actually.
0: <laughs> we, we were able to add production values that a, a small 108-seat house simply can't afford to give it. And then the question is, how do you do that without overwhelming it? And uh, without
3: changing the concept yes, of the yes. play? Right. Obviously, th- you were able to do that. You, you
5: were I, satisfied I th- with I it. I think we have. You're I best. think also, Michael had to, wanted to work on specific characters in the play. The mm-hmm. character of the father, he hadn't had a chance to really develop. and. In his rewrites, he, he uh, made the character more complex and more engaging, and those were the kinds of things that he wanted to do in between.
4: Did you uh, have the same set in, in Toronto, the one that you have here?
0: Yes, the set here is the same. We had one conversation. I came to see the play, and then that evening, I met with Michael and Austin, and, and I said to them, you know, what is it you, that you'd like to do? And Michael said exactly what, what Robin just said. And that was my feeling about the play. And so I think that I could see the process, that they had taken two years to get to this point with the play, and that it seemed to me that the people who had intimately been involved had brought it somewhere, and that those are the people you should be backing. So it, it seemed to me an idea that the concept of changing any of these major figures in, in, who had an intimate relationship with the author, I want as many of them to keep talking to them, Mm -hmm. because they knew what they were talking about. I just had the response of someone in the audience. And so, when I saw that I not only was getting Austin and Michael, but I was getting Robin and Carol. I thought I was getting a bargain. Okay.
3: <laughs> <laughs> maybe.
0: When did you get Peter? That's what I yeah, would have right, no,
2: we, just maybe you should just briefly right. say
0: what the play well, is about did, in a I couple of sentences. I think that we ought
2: to get Peter into this. Uh, I just wanted to get briefly what the what the play was All about. Right, no, no, we'll get we'll get Peter. What what the play was a, was about. We've been talking about emotion, but it, yeah. it, I think you can just tell us in two or three sentences it's it, cool. it's a, what it's about. The
5: play is, takes place in the nineteen fifties. It's about a sixteen year old boy who comes from a broken home. Who tries to bring his parents back together again?
2: That's beautifully put. <laughs> okay. Now, when did, the, when did the other people come into the process? Peter and <laughs> Josh and, and uh, John.
0: Well, I have a long standing relationship with both Peter and Josh because although we've not brought plays into New York, we are working in London and, and we want people to be informed and we want them to know what we're doing there. Uh, and we hope that they'll want to work in the VIC, and, and we also want them to work with us in Toronto. So I think it's very important that people are aware of what opportunities there are. And Josh has helped us do that. And Peter is someone that goes back with us to like father, like fun, I think, which is uh, – That's actually right. That's actually right. about, about
1: Twenty years ago.
0: Yes.
2: Twenty years
0: ago? Yes. About twenty years ago, my father brought a show in,
1: and Peter was the general manager on that. M- R- retitle for Broadway, a minor adjustment, in case anybody's diving through yeah. their theater <laughs>
5: <laughs> I also would like to say that, that part, of the reason, part of the reason that we also wanted to work with David is that we had had a relationship with Peter uh, through the second stage. He's been very supportive of our company, and we've always wanted to work with Peter and with Josh. We've had a relationship. Josh worked on painting churches. Tell us, what is it, Peter? what is it peter yeah he's peter. a gift from what do you got <laughs> <laughs> what do you do peter
1: okay well i'm the general manager of the show uh okay. do we want to talk specifically what that is mm-hmm,
3: very definitely
1: okay um you come into a show early on in, in the time i would say probably the first two individuals to get to get connected uh with a producer once they elect to produce a play will be the attorney and the manager and we'll start out uh initially by uh Doing production budgets for the show, how much will it cost to put on, uh, the weekly operating expenses, uh, negotiating contracts uh, for designers, actors, working with the attorney on authors and directors. uh, And depending upon the relationship you have with an individual producer, your job either can be – and not in in a negative sense of the term – it can be limited to the finances and contracts or whatever. But if the relationship is such, and there's a desire on the part of the producer, you can become more involved in being a guide, a right-hand man, and guiding guiding them through the process of putting Mm -hmm. the play on.
3: And then, go on. You continue. And then what happens? In terms (laughs)
2: of, you must have your own management at the Royal Alexandra. So Peter, was was he signed on as part of that phase? Well, that's that's also
0: interesting, because that's a little different than, I think, the normal setup. Uh, because, as of three years ago, we have a production company in Toronto, and we have fourteen people in the Toronto team who supervise <coughs> the build of it. But Peter was an intimate part of th- getting the d- the designer and the sets designed, so that really the two offices coordinated together. And uh, I don't know how, what
1: your opinion of how that's working and how all that well, goes. But I, I think the basic reason it's worked so well is because the relationship – between myself and Brian, is that we both like each other, trust each other, and I mean, it's one group in one country, another one somewhere else, and it's really been uh, one of the ideal relationships I've had. (laughs) Nice to
5: hear. Don't run over that word, trust.
1: Well, you see, there actually is is a border. border. Didn't I say that? Yeah, you did. This this is another country. There
0: are two different, distinct countries suddenly trying (laughs) to cooperate and work with one another. Uh, And exactly that, every time you cross the border, I'm asked if I'm here to work, and I, I, frankly, I never consider coming to New York work because I never get paid. I only, I only come here to see shows, so I'm a tourist today. <laughs>
3: <laughs> then, Peter, are you, do you then go into that area, or are they already part of the package?
1: Well, my question is how to you... Josh you
3: mean- and your right. lawyer.
1: Right. All right.
3: When do d- they come in? Actually, it's my <laughs> lawyer. <laughs> my <laughs> lawyer! <laughs> All right. Whose lawyer?
6: Whose lawyer are you?
3: The
5: <laughs> first was
6: being my lawyer. Right? All right. Uh, actually, I, uh, I began in this process uh, representing the second stage, mm-hmm. uh, which I'm really very proud to say I've uh, been able to do for many years, from the beginning with Robin and, beginning. and Carol. And it's, it really is a, a, a representation that, that gives, I think, anyone that, that comes to this business from my point of view, which is primarily from the commercial point of view, uh, a lot of pleasure. Because what uh, Carol and Robin do from the very beginning is, t- is take these plays that would not otherwise be seen anywhere and nurture them and bring them to the public, and that feeds the commercial arena. And indeed, I think it's fair to say that if it were not for a second stage and, and all the other regional not-for-profits, we'd have a wasteland on Broadway. Uh, so, I begin with with, uh, with the second stage in structuring their agreements with the author, because at that point uh, there's, there are no other commercial producers involved it's, its second stage is the producer, and that agreement in effect spins out the story contractually and legally uh, for the future life of the play. A second stage produces it in its venue, uh, the compensation for the actor. Uh, Actors and the director and the, uh, the author are set at that point in time. And then the second stage, in effect, has options, various options to move the play out of that theatre into the commercial arena. And as a technical matter, the second stage could produce the play itself if it wanted to. But as a practical matter, because of the costs involved, Uh, I don't know what your budget was at second stage, but we do know the budgets on Broadway (laughs) Broadway are many, many, many times uh, beyond that. Uh, In practical effect, most regional theaters and non-profit theaters eventually work hand-in-hand with the commercial theater. And those options that the second stage acquires early on in the the beginning of the process are used to negotiate the future commercial deals with David Mervish or any other producer that comes along.
4: Can I ask oh, a yeah, question, because Jean. I'm interested uh, in, in doing something like this myself. Uh, what do you do if you don't have someone like Mr. Marish, but you want to move a nonprofit profit production into the commercial theatre, and you, uh, you have to raise money, for instance? It's Is that a completely different kind it, of – It's very different
6: from a legal or financial yeah. point of view. Uh, and that's when you get into the very complicated area of what not-for-profit theatres as technically speaking, 501c3 uh, organizations can do, because uh, uh, virtually all the regional theaters are tax-exempt organizations, and they are restricted quite severely in doing anything at their level which will inure to the benefit of a private individual. What that all means, uh, uh, from a practical point of view, is that you cannot mix up your not-for-profit hat with commercial producers, or in a commercial sense, that will affect that not-for-profit status and therefore lose your tax-exempt status. So – and in the case that you've just uh, uh, raised, where you don't have a commercial producer but you wish to go forward yourself and raise money, there are a few things that can be done. It was done last season uh, for a play called uh, Steel Magnolias, which was moved to Off-Broadway by the uh, not-for-profit organization. You could form a subsidiary, and that subsidiary would be a profit subsidiary, just like any other company. But that company then has to go out and raise the money, and that company will pay tax. They'll pay taxes on the income, but whatever money is left then can be sent back to the not-for-profit organization. But the truth is, it's very difficult for that not-for-profit organization to have that schizophrenic, Uh, existence, because on the one hand, you're doing what you should be doing as a non-profit organization, building on the base of, you know, young writers and other writers who can't get their works done. But now, suddenly, you switch gears and you're doing this profit commercial venture. And what do you do? How do you keep those two in balance? It's very difficult.
4: No, I don't mean that the non-profit house itself wants to do it, but somebody else does.
6: Well, if someone else wants to do it, such as yeah, David Mervish, yeah. the classic situation is to license those rights, and that's indeed what happened here. Uh, the second stage, although it had the the rights originally uh, itself, because it had the option to move it to Broadway, when David came came around and said, "I'll do it commercially." The second stage entered into another agreement with David, in which it licensed and granted David the right to produce it on Broadway.
3: That you're not going to send a bill for that, are you? Well, that's <laughs> – I've, I've checked <laughs> my watch, my I've checked
6: te- te-
1: it te- te- ten <laughs> minutes. <laughs> <laughs> right. Tell me. Uh, what were you going to say? Well, it's, just, uh, it's interesting, John, as you're talking about this, you talk about how, how the elements in the staff of a production come together. In this case – and you're giving a perfect example of it right now – early on, when I was talking with David on the phone. I said, you know, I know that you've never used an attorney when you do things in Canada, but I really want you to have an attorney on this show. He said, well, we've never had one before. <laughs> I said, yes, but you've never done a play on Broadway before. Well, th- that's That's, well, that's really what I wanted to get into, then. What
3: happens with the unions? Where do you change now? Where do you change gear on the difference of the unions for? Uh, off Broadway, and now you're going on to Broadway. Who well, it deals with that? More
6: complicated. You might want to uh, talk about the Canadian-U.S. Mm-hmm. situation we're, first. We're basically an IATSE, IATSE house, mm-hmm. and what we ha- and so uh,
0: we have the same union in our theater as you have on Broadway. So we, we and all the sets that we use in our theater in Canada uh-huh. are IATSE built. So we we have virtually the same union in terms of the stagehands. But then there is the question of where is the point of origin of this play, and the question is: Should you make Toronto the point of origin, because that's where it's is first this going a to play?
2: Legal or technical question: Point of origin, the term you're using. It, does it become important in terms of contract? Equity, equity, equity.
0: Yes, yes because yeah. it then, afe- yeah. it then afe- affects actors' equity, ah. and it, it determines whether you're going to play the play on a Canadian contract or an American contract. And so you have to make a determination as to where the play, in your mind, is going to run longer, because there's an, adva- an advantage to have the point of origin be the place where, where the play is going to run longest. So we took the leap of faith and decided that New York, for this play, was a point of origin, and that the actors were all acting on American contracts. We held the rehearsals here. We then came up to Canada and brought them together with the set up there.
2: You say there's an advantage. What does this mean in terms of uh, uh, salaries for the actors? Is that the advantage? Or what is the advantage of the, the point of origin? Well, the first,
0: the first advantage is that if I do it on Canadian contracts, I won't have a lawyer. <laughs>
7: <laughs> <laughs> That's terrible! <laughs> Sorry, That's not,
0: that is, that is not true! <laughs> well, I've never had one before! <laughs> 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 You
6: will
0: from now on! As soon as you say Broadway, everyone's
1: life changes,
6: Mm.
1: and all the cost factors change. Well, something I'd like to say, a conversation we've had a lot, which which I think is very germane – has nothing to do with contracts, per se – a long-running conversation you, I and Brian have had, is that when you're doing a play that is going to be coming into New York, there's a whole set of other muscles that come into work. And even if those muscles have been lying dormant, because plays have been done just on tour, or in Toronto, and you've toured around uh, uh, Canada. Something different happens when people know a play is coming into New York, because the phrase that I've, we've used is that everybody knows at that point that the rest of their life, their career, <laughs> their complexion, their social life depends upon what happens with that play. And that translates into a lot more intensity, spending of money, desire for, rightly or wrongly, uh, money to be spent for additional perfections done to the play. And I I, I think think it catches all of us, and we all want that. And I think think you've seen that different thing happen
0: happen with this. Absolutely. And I think that that it's not a bad thing. And I think that if you're going to do a play in New York, you should have a lawyer.
6: Well, there's one – not to (laughs) underscore this too much, but there is one thing that is critical, and and David, as a theatre owner, is in a unique position, because he has several hats that he can keep uh, switching on and off. But let's take the pure independent producer – I don't know where he is these days, but (laughs) (laughs) the pure independent producer who doesn't have the theatre, the subscription series, or or perhaps the bankroll that some other people may have, they have to raise money. They have to go out and get, whether it's 700000 800000 or a million and a half dollars. The moment you talk about Broadway, the moment you talk about New York, immediately the securities laws of the state of New York, most particularly, and the federal government, and perhaps the rest of the securities laws around the United States, come into play. So the moment you're, you're, you're talking to one investor, even if that investor's <coughs> abroad, in England or in, in Canada, if your intent is to come into this state, you immediately become, uh, become involved in those securities laws. And this is not the time and place to get into the details about that. But they are, you know, laws that carry sanctions, civil and criminal sanctions. Very so important. it's terribly important when you're raising money.
2: What is, just since we've been talking about what is the <coughs> budget for... Uh, for New York, of this production, Excuse the budget of the show?
1: Uh, the budget <laughs> is one and a half million dollars, but that that budget is not a question of the show costing one and a half million dollars to get on. Of that budget, I think approximately seven hundred thousand dollars is uh, a reserve for additional unknown expenses, such as when we were in Toronto, we decided to lower the proscenium, bring it in a foot and a half to focus the play in better. Some of the set pieces have been changed, some costumes have been changed. And that's modest. I mean, you can throw out tons of scenery and lighting and change it all over again. Additionally, and unfortunately, one of the most important things these days in a reserve is the fact you expect, particularly with a dramatic play, it's a given. You are going to lose money during the preview period. You can lose twenty, forty, sixty, seventy thousand a week in preview, just as an automatic fact of life. So all that has to be built into the budget.
2: But this is now, we're talking about a million and a half dollars right. for a play that has how many characters? Six. Six, six characters. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's uh, really quite
1: extraordinary. Yeah. Well, well, it's how many sets?
4: Yeah.
3: Well, it's,
1: a, it's, a, it's, a, it's one six. very elaborate set of I, I would a say that table. if this had been a conventional one set uh, uh, sofa, coffee table chair kind of play, like F.U. Herbert used to write, that that I would say that probably you'd cut about 300,000 or so off this budget. But you're uh, still talking about over a million dollars. For a play going out of
6: town, yes. And it is, uh, we won't mention the play in particular, but there is a play not uh, produced not too long ago, which lost close to $400,000 out of town. Uh, that's a staggering amount of money. And no play, even at a million and a half dollars budget, could afford to keep that into its budget. Uh, it's a... Uh, Frightening experience to take a play out of town, and that was the uh, the advantage yeah. we had here. We had the security of a uh, a theater owner slash producer. That,
3: that being out of town is so much better than having yeah. Creatively, weeks, and weeks of, of previews here. Economically, if you can balance that. If
6: you can balance the from an what economic point on, of view. on
3: getting money now? Do you have to do have to do any more funding, or is
0: no? It we, fun- it? we funded it out of our subscribers and out of ourselves because. We think theatre is a risky enough business that we shouldn't ask other people to take a risk. <laughs> but <laughs> but now, what but a rare man <laughs> you <are. Yeah. laughs> I
2: think we should get to, to, to Josh, Josh. Josh comes in. Yes, go I'm ahead, I'd like to
4: say one word. You know, when I think of a six-character play, even with a double turntable and all of that, costing over a million dollars, I can't get over it, because we, we did uh, – uh, when I was a producer on Broadway. We did plays like that for $80,000, the top was 100000 We all dropped dead when we thought we had to raise $100,000. I know. I know. Th- so, I mean, the, uh, really, the economics of the theatre today are almost stag- outlandish. I see stag-
0: there, there's actually something I'd like to say about that, because there's something very interesting that is going on. There's a real change. Independent producers, which is what I call commercial producers, and and non-profit producers really have a great deal in common, which is that they want their theatres to be full. And we really are set out with the same problem. And there's a shift in, in activities that's going on outside of New York. When we began to produce in Toronto, the first thing I did is I turned to the Canadian Opera Company, and I said, look, I have no experience in doing musicals. Can we do a musical together? And they said, let's try and do Kismet. Now, we only did it for our theatre, and we did it for a ten-week period, as the end of a subscription show. And it was extremely successful. It broke even. It didn't make a profit, but didn't lose any money. It was a full-scale musical with 30 people in it. Judy Kaye, who's now in Phantom, mm-hmm. was the lead in it for us. We had uh, Michael McGuire, who's in Les Mis, as Angel Roy, uh as part of the cast. We had a mixed Canadian and American cast, with not all the leads being American. We had John Reardon in it, and not all the leads being Canadian. So we had a company of people who played to our own specific audience, and we had a joining together of a profit and a non-profit theatre to do something together. Before that, we'd worked with the Shaw Festival, which is a non-profit theatre, and had a good experience, and since have done the women together, which we saw as a small production, and then they reconceived it. They had done it in a 300-seat house, but they had to think quite differently to do it in our theatre. In England, we've had a good experience in working with the Royal Shakespeare Company to do Kiss Me Kate as a co-production, and they started in Stratford. So, the ways of getting shows on, there are other ways besides the conventional ways, and they allow nonprofits to be more ambitious in some of the programming than they could do by themselves, and they allow us to be more ambitious than we could be by ourselves. So that's a real shift.
2: A happy yeah. association. Yeah. yeah.
0: And I think you'll see a lot more of it.
2: Well, I think we really need to find out where Josh comes in, yes. on, in <laughs> on this picture, and uh, the part he plays in this, uh, the very important part he plays yeah. in this lucky
7: I was very lucky. I, I uh, saw Spoils of War just as a theatre-goer, not as a press agent. Uh, I heard that it was a, a good play. I heard that it was a wonderful play. And I just went to see it because it sounded like something I'd like to see. Um, I suppose, but it's just one of those kind of shows where you just see it the first time and you just get knocked out, and you go, "I just can't believe this play." I mean, I think that we're talking about a play that has the potential to be this generation's glass menagerie. And uh, that's very uh, rarefied company, and you think, "Oh my God, this is just a wonderful play." And it's one of those kind of plays that at is second stage, and you know, it was just bouncing up against the walls. I mean, this is this, is this, this enormously wonderful play, <coughs> and a performance by Kate Nelligan that just pushed the walls of the theatre back, and you just go, wow, isn't that just a wonderful play? And you leave it, and you go, it was not wonderful. As the theatre guard had a terrific experience, and you leave the theatre and you're perfectly satisfied. The joy of this was that, through a series of events, uh, Ed and David Mervish became producers of it, with whom I had a relationship. But, I remember hearing about, well, so-and-so was going to produce it, and someone else was going to produce it, uh, and I heard about the film rights, and what movie stars had seen it, and who wanted to do it. And you start going, well, it has a life of its own, totally independent of me. Isn't that nice that, it, that it's, that, that other people have been as enchanted by this play as I have? I mean, then you find out that you're lucky enough to represent it. And you go, that's, that's not only wonderful, but I suppose it puts an enormous responsibility on you because, um, it's not just enthusiasm that in fact sells it. The fact is that the responsibility is awesome for a press agent and for the advertising agency because we are talking about an endangered species here. We're talking about something which is called a straight play on Broadway. We're not talking about a comedy, we're not talking about a musical. We are talking about something that is so rare on Broadway that the sad point of the situation is that Spoils of War is the only straight play on Broadway to open between August and February. Straight play means non-comedy drama to open in that period and if you look at the, n- the listings in the times about how many straight shows versus how many musicals there are on Broadway there are four non-musicals on Broadway so we are really talking about an endangered species now there isn't anything like kind of like a Broadway environmentalist that will say like how do we save these wonderful things called straight plays um, the hard part I suppose is, is finding producers who will do them in the first place and then it's also trying to find an audience Who will support straight? Is that what you're
3: supposed to do to find that audience? It's trying to
7: find that audience, and I'd say it's a combination between the press agent and the advertising agency working together. How do you begin
3: working on that in order to get into budget, Josh?
7: Well,
4: could I just say one word before you go on? The reason he's a great press agent is he's one of the rare people. He loves the theater. Well, it's very
7: obvious. Yes. yeah, but, you know, it's uh, – <laughs> anyway, I guess yeah, right. it's, you love the theatre when you see something that's wonderful, and I yeah. guess that that horrible disappointment when you see something that uh, Yeah, that's get know, to, to right.
3: <laughs> Josh's budget and, and, and okay, what I'm, you're working on. I think
7: that. Peter really should be, speak better about the budget, but I suppose what we're, we're trying to do is create an environment in which a straight play can exist, and to that – to one of the things that clearly is the star of the play, in Kate Nelligan, as the performance on the stage, which clearly speaks for itself, and the way that Kate goes and does interviews and talks about the show to the public. Uh, we also have a very articulate playwright and director. And in fact, looking at this at this panel, I mean, everybody who does interviews for this show speaks about it intelligently and lovingly. And I suppose it's that combination that's really irresistible. I think it's irresistible as a creative situation, but it's also to the outside world, when they do interviews and when they speak about it, it shows. It, 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 it's, this is not a play that someone said, okay, we'll do it because we have a, we have nothing else to do this year. I mean, this, this is a this play that's being done because everybody <laughs> here loves it. And you know you're laughing, but I mean, there have been situations when people produce a play, simply because- Don't look as if they don't need you, Josh! <laughs> <laughs> oh yes,
3: we
5: do.
7: <laughs> um, I also have to say one thing about how that, that image is created, and, and, and really sharing, sharing that with, with some people. Um, the press agent at the Second Stage is Richard Kornberg, who did a fabulous job at Second Stage, and is the press consultant for the Broadway production. And it is really a team that does it. And when we were in Toronto, it's Gino Empri. So, it was really a team effort, and by, no, by no, and also with everyone in my office with, who works on the show. And we do it together, and I don't think that it, No Man Is an Island particularly a press It's Asian. one of
3: the pluses of working mm-hmm. in the theatre, I think. You mm-hmm. find that when you believe in something. I think you should tell about how we
5: uh, evolved the poster, Josh, because I think that tells the story of how we're trying to present the play.
7: Okay. Um, I think you better do it, because I I may give out forget a detail. Why don't you do it? Oh well,
5: David and I, all of us, interviewed a bunch of advertising agencies, and we chose Sereno Coin, because we felt they were the best people to work on the play. And we had a creative meeting, and correct, me – you can answer this. uh, One of the things we thought about the play, if nobody, if people didn't know anything about it, the title had a lot of negative words. Well, two major negative words in it, let's put it – let's face it, of is a perfectly good
7: word. <laughs> no one objected to the word <laughs> of <problem>. was. <laughs>
0: you'll
5: actually notice, that's of is biggest, underlined. <laughs> <the> We said, how can we, how can we give the image that this play is not a play about, you know, someone dying in the war, or it's not a – it's a very funny play, actually. People are actually surprised when they come to see how much humor there is in it. Although it's very moving, it's quite funny and sexy and all the things that make a play wonderful. And Kate Nelligan's performance is, is uh, breathtaking. Uh, you know, there were other wonderful performances in the play, Jeffrey DeMunn and a few other pe- – everyone in the play is wonderful, in my opinion. But Kate's performance is the performance that got all the reviews at the second stage that were uh, really exciting. So And she's a very dynamic character, a very interesting character, a very sexy character. So out of our discussions came the idea of, well, let's somehow show that in the poster. Let's, let's show who that woman is. Let's, let's show that sort of seductive quality of her. And as you can see, or I don't know if they can see, but we can see, it is is a picture of Kate really uh, in, a, in a sort of uh, alluring way, uh, asking you to uh, offset the title of the play and see what it's really about? With the two men, of course, as a triangle above her, uh, the two men being her son and her husband. But it was it was chosen because it it was uh, playing against the title actually, which is hard to, hard to understand if you don't know what the play is about.
7: I think also tied in with that was also we wanted a copy line for the play, and it's. Some people you just don't get over, some plays you just don't miss. And it is a character that somewhere, with the ad agency, came up with a line somewhere in between Auntie Mame and Amanda Wingfield. And that's what it is, and uh, you don't get over this character. You wouldn't get over her in life, and God knows when you see the play, you're not going to get over her as a theatrical character.
3: Do you make the decision at this creative conference of what what line your advertising is going to take, uh, including logos and including three sheets or whatever? Is that the decisions that you make there, and how much you're going to –
1: Would that it only happened at one meeting. Yeah. (laughs) 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 All right. Can
3: you tell us where you you go along from there? Because that's really –
7: I think – I guess it's a question of, there's going to be a a certain image that you're going to have in newspaper advertisements. Mm -hmm. There might be a similar one in those three sheets that you see on the uh, train stations and subway platforms. Um, There's a radio commercial where those lines are incorporated, plus additional ones. Um, there's a, a song in the play, and that's used as part of the, of the radio commercial. And somewhere along the line, it might even be part of a television commercial. But I think somewhere the question, the line, the question okay. is not only how much money there is to be spent, but the ultimate decisions about how that money is going to be spent, where it's going to be spent, and the timeframe in which it's going to be spent. Um, which gets really back to that whole question about this endangered species, the straight play on Broadway, which is how much do you want to spend in advance to get how much of an audience, and how much do you want to spend after the play opens, because there's just so much money that you can spend to get people in.
3: How important do you think it is, in, in, between radio and media and television, on your audience? Where would,
7: where would you put your dollars? I think it depends on the play. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, if you have a musical as one consideration, if we're speaking specifically about Spoils of War, clearly the decision was much more in print and radio. Mm-hmm. Um, we also did one-sheets, well, which you see all, behind all here. Also, suggestion. we've always had a lot of co- – not just on this play,
1: but in general – about how difficult it is to evolve a successful television commercial for a dramatic play. I mean.
7: It's, it's Consistently,
1: very, it's it's just so hard to do. Yeah,
2: musicals lend themselves, don't yes. they, mm. with a, a splash?
1: Mm. Yeah, there's there's a, a John
2: Braylio and I are involved in the Theatre Development Fund. I'm sure you've used them for previews. Is that, has that been oh, we, s- successful we. and helpful?
1: Yeah, very happily we got uh, their grant, uh, where they're guaranteed to sell six thousand tickets, at twelve and a half dollars a ticket or eleven and a half. I forget. <laughs> uh, but the thing is, you're guaranteed to have that, which with the, which uh, with a dramatic plays, an how enormous much is help.
3: The is what, t- me? what percentage of the audience is that? Well, at? in
1: our preview period, let me just think now. Uh, stage weight. While I figure this out, <laughs> uh, 240, 60, uh, It's going to be about twenty-five percent of all of our sales during the preview period. That's
3: quite a. That quite is quite
1: a That's
3: percentage. That's very important. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, is that unusual? Can you get do you, do? You? Well,
1: th- well, the thing is, the TDF only gives. I, I'm not do quite sure. Do you want to say many, what
3: TDF is?
1: Oh, thea- Theatrical Development Fund. Well, the one thing that they do that <laughs> close, I think l-
2: of <laughs> Theater <laughs> Development <laughs> Fund. That's all right. Sorry about that's that. That's right. <laughs>
1: um, John and I will let that go. <laughs> oh, Henry is going to kill me. Sorry, <laughs> that's
2: all right. We'll protect you. Go
1: on. Um, well, they, they run the half-price ticket booth, uh, both in New York at Duffy Square, and there's one, I believe, in the Wall Street area and also in Brooklyn. Yes. But that's just the, the more overt aspect uh, that the public is aware of. But uh, since you know, it's Theatre Development Fund, not theatrical, <laughs> you could probably clue in more. D- uh, a lot of the other no. It's just that, that I, I just
2: I, this is a play that I think is a natural, and it's proven oh, yeah. to be that Absolutely. for this this mail list that they have, because mm-hmm. we, the, we the, the Theatre Development Fund has a mail list of ninety thousand people from whom they choose to get that six thousand to guarantee that you will have a preview audience. That is, it's an audience that is very interested in coming to the theatre, yeah. and very, yes. very responsive. Yes, yes, yes. Has that proved to be the case in the previews? Yes. Oh, yeah. They're a great audience. Very much so.
3: Is Which there any ha- other merchandising that you do before th- getting an audience into the theatre? Direct mail. We did.
7: Right. <coughs> um We did a direct mail piece. Right. Um, <laughs> obviously, this play had a recognition factor for two reasons. One, obviously, it was done in New York at, at the Second Stage Theatre so people knew about it, and we had access to varying lists, and to send out a direct mail piece telling people about the Broadway production based on information and word of mouth that that happened during the second stage period. Um, It was a particularly... I mean, direct mail sometimes works, sometimes doesn't work. It worked particularly well in this case because there was that recognition factor. What kind of list did you use for that? I don't we
5: remember. used second stage lists, we used uh, telecharge lists, mm-hmm. and we used circle rep lists. We used a variety of But lists.
1: the telecharge list was very specific. Yes. It was the telecharge customers who bought uh, tickets for speed M. Butterfly, Burn This, Speed the Plow. This, be the plow so for we were straight able – For straight Yeah. yeah uh-huh. Yes, yes. We were able to hone in on a particular audience, because to send them to La Caja Fall subscribers does not necessarily mean that they're going to yeah. race out and buy the play.
3: Is that unusual? Have you done that before? Or is this the well, first time you've done uh, this?
1: I, uh, I was involved in it when we did Precious Sons a few years ago, mm-hmm. and it was very, very helpful there also.
3: I, I ask this, because I, I don't think that theatres do enough merchandising of, of, of plays. N- Off-Broadway does, but Broadway theatre doesn't seem to do that much. Well,
7: I mean, I think one of the problems is that um, you do a direct mail, it's not a very showy thing. I mean, your best friend doesn't say, oh, I got a nice piece of, you know, I got a nice letter from today, or a nice <laughs> piece in the mail. I mean, and I think that, that, that Broadway advertising, to a great degree, are the th- is the things that, that are the most showy and visible. I mean, you know, you have a television commercial, most people will see it, and people will talk about it, but I mean, is it isn't necessarily cost-effective mm-hmm. to do it. I mean, we're talking about a dollars and cents operation, it's commercial Broadway, the bottom line is the dollars figure, and uh, it was the best way to spend the money. Not necessarily the most ostentatious way to spend the money, but the best way to for how much it costs, for how much you would get in return, to remind people that there is a straight play, and very specifically going to people who are predisposed to going Mm. to straight plays. Mm.
4: Did you get a good response?
5: Yes. As a matter of fact, Serena Coyne was very excited by the response, because they were. (sighs) They were champions of the idea of direct. The second stage does it all the time, so we're quite used to it. Mm. But for Broadway, it is an unusual thing. Yeah, and yeah. yes, we got an excellent,
0: excellent response. I, in dollar terms, it actually works out I'm Sorry, to what did you say? In terms of the dollars, what, what we got back was $3 for every dollar we spent. Well, that's so far. far. Well, that's
5: wonderful. So quite far. remarkable. Yeah.
0: Uh, now, what, what it really means is that you can't run a play this way. You can go through two and a half weeks of previews. Right and recognize that you're going to carry the cost of doing that. But what it gives you that's very important is an audience that's knowing and caring that you can work with and do something that makes the play more exciting so that when you do arrive at opening night, you open with the play you want. And that audience is essential to you. So. At the
1: same
2: time, you're not losing that $400,000. You would lose out of town. No, you're, you're
0: losing forty or 50000 a week. <laughs> <laughs> okay, by me. Yeah. Do
1: you have a
3: balcony?
0: We have one balcony, yes. And do yes. you
3: have a difference in, in, in the cost of the ticket?
0: Um, I believe so, yes. And
1: well, yeah, you, are you talking about
0: the Royal Alex?
3: No, no, I'm talking yeah. about here. here. I'm, I'm not yes, it's the music, oh, box, the music box, which is, yes, a, which a, is a, a, a
0: thousand box. seats. Uh-huh. And there are different price levels. Uh-huh. And, of course, the goal is to keep the prices as low as possible. What unfortunately happens, because of the structure of theatre, is that... You can't break with half a house. You have to do much better than half a house. You have to do about 60% just to cover your running costs. And that's before you recover any of your million and a half. So you have to sell out for a number of weeks if you ever hope to see your money come back to you.
3: What does sell out mean? The entire house? How much can you work on?
0: Well, if you sold the entire if you did 60%, mm-hmm. you would never get any money back. You would always right. be able to keep the show running, but you'd never get any of your money back. So you've, you've got to do better than that Except if you want to get something back. What
3: is better than that? What percentage can you...? Well,
0: anything promise? over 60 will give you some of your money okay, back. So we'll money back. Right.
1: But the thing is, if you're only running at 60%, you will not run for, at 60% forever. You will close in two weeks' time. Yeah. That's right.
2: But how many weeks will you have? Would you have to run this particular show to get on, the investment On paper, back? Yeah, on, on paper, paper it's yes. about sixteen weeks, which is very good. I mean, that's uh, well. That's on
1: papered capacity. No,
2: I understand, but a lot of them. I mean, uh, Starlight Express and some of but them no, on that, paper had to run for a oh, good for,
1: for a dramatic play, this is a lot of weeks because it's a large yes, capitalization. Yes, yes,
3: yes. We're going to have to take a break now, and don't go far away because we're all going to get back to what is this structure that you talk about in the theater in which you have to address yourselves to in order to have a full house and the tickets to be sold. We'll be right back to the seminars on working in the theater, so please don't go away. everyone. <laughs> You're
5: Wonderful, all of you.
0: This is CUNY TV, the City University of New York. (laughs)
3: Eddie, (laughs) We're back at the American Theatre Wing seminars on working in the theatre, coming to you from the City University, the Graduate Center of New York. This seminar today is on the production, the producers of Spoils of War a wonderful new play. And I'm not going to take up any more time, because I want to get back to the producers and with our co-moderators, Gene Dalrymple and Ed Wilson, to talk about cost, the why, and the creative efforts that have gone
4: into Spoils of War. Shall we start with you, Gene? Well, I would like to know a little bit more about the, uh, the financing uh, of it. Have you said it cost a million and six hundred thousand?
1: One million and five.
4: Five, oh. Uh, yeah, I made a little more, because everything is always <laughs> higher than I thought. <laughs> and, uh, and you have 700,000 in reserve?
1: Well, Isn't that extraordinary? Yeah, uh, that it's that approximately <laughs> that. Um, maybe between five and six, somewhere around there.
0: But in but fact, you have to consider that the reserve is part of the capital and that it's going to go. You can't. When you reach opening night, if you decide not to go on,
1: I think somewhere around a million-three yeah, if, if if the show closed, if, if this production had closed, uh, you know, would close opening night, uh, there'd probably be a two or three hundred thousand uh, dollar reserve that would still be left. Which possibly. of course
0: none of us expected to
1: do. We <laughs> <No>. all expect <laughs> to continue.
0: <Yeah. laughs> you just saw Lady Age <laughs> <Angel> over here.
1: <laughs> Margot coming out of Shangri La. <laughs> yes,
0: really.
4: That's that's remarkable, and then you would uh, you would have that left anyway.
0: Yeah, would, but, would, but the, the point situation. of the exit, yeah. you want to be and you what, want to spend it, yes. have a reason yeah. to spend it. You right. want the opportunity to spend it, and let the public decide what, what, yes. whether, what they feel.
4: Well, you have a chance to keep it running, then, and, and advertise it heavily, and so mm-hmm. forth. What,
2: are, what is the ticket price scale for the show at the Music uh, Box? It's a
1: 37.50 top for seven performances, and 32.50 for one performance. Which is what, a Wednesday matinee? Wednesday matinee. <laughs> yes. Yeah.
3: Do you have an advance sale, do you have group sales, have you done
0: well, much it's, of that? It's, it, we have had some group sales, but it's not the type of play that normally attracts it. And what Broadway now sells in advance are the big musicals. The audience for a straight dramatic play, as we said in the first half, this is the only one that's going on in five months. And so, this is we all know when we start that it's something that, that we have to get an audience for by the strength of the actual work.
3: Who goes after group sales or makes that decision, if you say, well, this is not something that they're going to want?
0: The day we, mm-hmm. we decided we were going to New York, we went after group sales. We mm-hmm. went to see the people who are in charge of group sales, who are the experts at it, who have experience, and we said, please find us group sales. And they said, great. The day after we have your reviews, we'll get you some <laughs> group sales. That's <laughs> a 22 yeah, yeah. But it's true. It's
5: true. Yes. Well, I
4: think so that, that people have to depend too much on the critics here. And it's very hard to get away from that, and it's always the New York Times. I think if you get a good review in the New York Times, no matter what the other papers say, you have a very good chance of putting the show over, whether it's a straight play or a a musical. Don't you think so? there,
0: There is another way to look at that, though. We're lucky to have the papers. The papers don't have to write about theatre or about plays. We only compel them to write about it if we're doing something that's worth writing about. Their space is valuable. So if we do something in the theatre that's challenging and exciting and scintillating and interesting, they might write about us. And we're lucky to have that, because without them, there would be no hope of having this sort of play. So, That's it works the other yeah. way.
3: Yeah. Jeff, ha- have you had it, Have you found it difficult to, to uh, promote the straight play, to do the usual stories or publicity and no, I think public relations, it, whichever? It, it is. isn't
7: hard getting the stories. It's, what's, it's a harder t- transition to make between having those stories run and actually selling tickets. That there is still, you can build up an awareness up to opening night, and people will be primed to see what the reviews say. But that that old way of being able to generate publicity, and on the publicity alone, building up an advance sale, I don't think really exists anymore, with probably the exception being plays maybe that came from England, that were pre-reviewed by the New York critics who saw them in London, and loved them in London, And then they come to New York with a major star, but then, you know, that's a very specialized kind of thing. So we get usually two or three of those a season.
1: I I think the operative word you're using, Josh, is when you said build up an awareness. I think with the dramatic play, the advertising prior to opening, the point of it really is to build up an awareness so that when the reviews come out, the people who read the reviews go, oh yes, I've been hearing about that play. because. We were using a word early on, which is a word which is terror to my ears. If a new producer comes into an office, and they talk about a new play they have, and they go, we're going to merchandise this. Yeah. And you die, Mm -hmm. because you cannot merchandise it in that retail, wholesale sense of the term. Because a play is in preview is only going to sell as many tickets as it's going to sell. And whether you have three full-page ads or one half-page ad as a display, you're still going to sell that same amount that the combination of uh, uh, elements, you know – help me fill in a word here – the combination of elements justifies selling. Like with the half-price booth uh, for the Theatre Development Fund on Times Square, (laughs) at 47th Street.
7: We should talk about, about merchandising, which is clearly something that's happening right now with shows, with with tie-in, say, with the American Express and so forth. I mean, these companies are clearly interested in getting involved in the theatre. However, they are also very interested in having very safe bets, mm. so that they tend now to you – know, what's a safe bet? Well, something that comes from England is a safe bet. Um, That's been successful. I mean, it's been successful there. <laughs> but, and, and those things uh, – I worked on a show which had a lot of potential tie-ins, but when the show didn't get good reviews, every one of the companies involved pulled out and said, hey, listen, we only wanna really want to back I a winner.
1: I've got to disagree in one area with that with you, and and just mention it because I think it's very interesting about the um, the the sophistication of these companies. Uh, And I'll I'll mention what it was when I worked on Rosa last year with AT and T, and the reviews came out and they were not good, and AT and T came to us and said, "We will fund your advertising for the next two or three weeks." because we don't want anybody to feel that we are going to walk away from something simply because it didn't get good reviews. That was one of the most yes. lovely, yeah. That's uh, nice. somewhat altruistic, I <laughs> uh, you know, postures I I've ever you know, seen. Of so of I thought it was pretty terrific.
3: I was thinking of merchandising and going out and finding other customers, of, of, of going to clubs and going out of the city, of going to Connecticut and the tri-state areas, and bringing in people, going out and reaching for those people to come in to the theatre. Not wait on just point of sale, and, and uh, again, get your, your – there now is they, a show they're
7: now, That audience is primed to wait. I think that they're, they're just, they are willing to hear about things, but they're not willing to plunk down the bucks until they're absolutely certain that it's worth the trip into New York. And, and all some the of other. that is
5: word of mouth, don't you think, Josh? Like I'm not Rapaport, and certain plays that have survived not great New York Times reviews, that sometimes word of mouth right. can make that difference. I think we have to do everything.
1: Or something called the Tony Award, yes. (laughs) (laughs) That would help.
0: (laughs) Tony Award. Well in
1: fact we're seeing that
0: now. We're seeing people shift to open their plays in the spring instead of the fall. Traditionally the fall was the time to open. But now the time to open is just before the Tony Awards, if you have a straight play, because you hope that if you are well received, this will give you the extra boost. But you, the problem is that the independent producer really works two or three years to do one play, and he doesn't have the mechanism to reach out into that audience that you're talking about. The rep companies in subsidised theatres, like the Royal Shakespeare in England or the National, who are continuously pre- bringing new products into their line, if we could refer to a play as a product, <coughs> uh, that audience is there for them because there's a continual expectation and people do come in from Kent and from Sussex and from the, the suburbs.
3: There's a great deal of that being done in England that I don't see being done here. I see
0: the potential for it here with the Lincoln Center. And you can see that they've built their base of 36,000 subscribers now. They have a group of people that they're reaching out to. You can see it in the smaller rep companies that are the non-profit theatres. It's a, a place that starts and is nourished better in the non-profits under our present structure. Now, what we're trying to do in England is fit someplace between the for-profits and the non-profits. We have a commercial West End theatre in the old Vic. But what we're trying to do is work in a season with three or four different plays. And so uh, when we do that, we can sell a subscription and sell some of those early weeks in advance
3: we 're going to turn this over to questions now, because there is so much to be asked of these producers of spoils of war, and i 'm going to ha- have the first person ask a question right now. Would you move right up fast?
1: Yes, my name is Gordon Skinner, and this question is for David Merish with Mar- the new Mar- approved Mar- i 'm sorry with the new approved production contract in this country, how does it affect productions outside of the u s namely Canada, and what are your feelings on that contracts effect of out of town tryouts?
0: That's a wonderful question. (laughs) I think I must be one of the first people to be working with the APC, the the new approved production contract. This is a creation by creatures from Mars. (laughs) They obviously never had anything to do with wanting to make a play, work on Broadway. I don't think that Michael Weller likes it, and I don't think I like it. But we both decided that before we were going to have endless conversations, we should just sign it. (laughs) And so, we're learning about it. And it's been wonderful. I mean, we at least aren't having endless conversations. We both agreed on something, and we're trying it out. But it's it's a new contract. It has things that are not good for encouraging Broadway productions, and it probably has things that are unfair to authors. And as soon as we have the time to sit down after the opening, maybe we'll both learn to understand it. (laughs) Thank you.
1: Uh, my, my name is Carl Kulikowski. The question is of Mr. Wilson. Uh, after World War II when during the time of Jed Harris, there were about a dozen major uh, producers on Broadway, and they were all looking for plays to bring on Broadway. And they were all big names, and playwrights sent uh, material for these dozen playwrights, uh, producers. Over the years, they've de- decreased the number. Now there's practically no major producers on Broadway. To bring straight plays that we're talking about to Broadway, what happens uh, in an interval?
2: I, I'm, I'm sorry. Is your question, why have we come to this point, or yeah. what, what? Where do we go from here?
3: I think no, why we have come both. to this
2: <laughs> why we've come to this point. Well, uh, a number of people on this panel could answer this, and I, maybe John Braglio could speak to it a little bit too, because he's very been very intimately involved in the transition you're talking about. But certainly, we have undergone a, a significant change from the period where we had independent producers, like Gene Dalrymple, among many others whom you named. And now there are very few, uh, Bob Whitehead and Roger berlin and just a very few, Roger being someone uh, that you've worked yeah. with. Mm. Uh, but the, essentially, without going into the reasons, uh, let me say that there has been a drift toward the theatre owners, the owners of the Schubert Organization and the Niederlander Organization in particular. Uh, who have taken over the role of producers, though they really aren't essentially producers. And uh, the independent producer has been uh, either, I won't say frozen out, but has actually disappeared from the scene, partly because I think of rising costs and the difficulty in raising money, because of these astronomical figures we've been talking about here in terms of budgets and finding investors for that, and partly because of a number of other conditions. And so we really have seen a significant shift uh, from those many independent producers. And what's taking up the uh, the, the void now and trying to fill the void, on the one hand, are the not for profit organizations that are supplying and originating theaters, both the regional theaters and the not for profit theaters here in uh, uh, New York, such as the Manhattan Theater Club, uh, Ensemble Studio Theater, lots of others, and Second Stage,
6: which Robin represents.
7: John, do
2: you want to amplify this at all in terms of? Well, I-
6: in the in the beginning and the end, for the commercial producer or the independent producer, it has to be a business at some point. And unless you have, or you're prepared to write the check yourself, you have to seek out that financing. And the simple matter of the economics of the theatre today is that the average cost of a play is about a million and a half dollars, maybe a million to a million and a half, and for a musical, five to six to seven to eight million dollars. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now you work, you, you work back from there. If you take the economics of that production so many, cost, yeah. which is the, just the money to get it on the stage, and then work your way back and say, what can I say to an investor as an independent producer about his or her chance to get the money back and to make some profit? The fact of the matter is, at a total sellout for a musical, total sellout, you're looking at anywhere from 15, 18 to 20 months at a sellout to get back your money, period, no profit. And for a play, anywhere from 4, 5, 6, 8 months to get your money back. Now, that's a staggering statistic, and there's not a lot you can do about that number. There are some things you can, but there's not a lot. Given that reality, it has become increasingly difficult for independent producers to find that financing. And given also the change in the tax laws that took place in 86, which makes it less attractive in terms of the benefits, benefits in quotes, if you have a loss as an investor, those things have built on themselves so that, yes, the theatre owners have taken over, but not to totally uh, speak or carry their banner. They've jumped into the breach. I've had theatre owners say to me, John, I would love it if there was an independent producer to do this, but there isn't, so I'm going to produce it. They're, they don't exist. So I see it from a purely, not totally, but uh, from a purely economic point of view, we almost have no choice to that.
3: Thank you for that.
6: Uh, my name is Todd Terry. Uh, my question is to anybody that can answer this. Uh, we all hear about the union rules that seem to constrict the theatre, uh, orchestras that are required to show up but don't play. Uh, foreign actors that aren 't permitted to work here, can we change these rules, or could you give me a little more Do you information? Want to
7: tackle that no, I think probably
1: not I think probably not part of it i mean one of the various factors involved in it, I think is that the business agents of the various unions are elected by their membership and they 're elected every year or two or three depending upon uh, the uh, the, the governing laws of the individual union. They're elected by the membership, and the membership simply wants more. And the uh, business agents are charged by their membership to continue to improve their situation. And there always seems to be a philosophy that it, uh, there seems to be no overview about the fact that, yes, this may be good for you for the moment, but it will eventually start to decrease and decrease the number of productions. Like, I mean, this season. Not only the spoils of War, the first dramatic play, have we had what I would call a significant Broadway opening prior to ours this year? I mean, September, Papers, October? No. Okay, there's been Papers, a revival of a musical. Maybe. So, I mean, we have all these dark theaters going. Uh, I'm, 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 get, I'm getting away from your question, but I, I, actually, I don't think there's much that can be done about it. I really don't.
3: That's a pity.
1: Yeah. Yes, it is.
3: Hi, I'm Luann Pavlin. My question is for the panel. If the Metropolitan Opera and various ballet companies can open complex productions without previews, why does the theater require previews?
1: Well, here I go again. <laughs> <laughs> um, in past days in the theater, I mean, plays uh, might have gone out of town or uh, come directly into New York, and they might have one preview and open, or open, open on the first performance. The thing is now, the risk is so great uh, that people want to insure themselves and be able to have some insurance by working on the production to a greater degree. A better reason, actually, I think, is that in the time period I'm talking about, going back to the 20s, early 30s, whatever, the primary source of entertainment was the theatre. And a wonderful phrase that's been associated mostly with uh, France, the boulevard play, I've just seen a crop up in articles about the theater here, and just the casual play, just a play put up being done fine. If it's not perfect, doesn't matter. It'll have an audience for a few months, and um, that that will be okay. But now, with all of the pressure from major when I say major motion pictures, you know, fine motion pictures, a lot of TV, the cable, the uh, 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 not-for-profit on television, there's so much competition. And so, theatre is now l- no longer the entertainment of the masses. It's become very elitist, unfortunately. And people feel a desire that they have to be, that everything has to be more and more perfect. Every- I mean, you should hear the conversations on Spoils of War, <laughs> the notes, the memos, about a phrase, a line, uh, well, uh, I, I a moment. I
5: also think, some, uh, for me, at the second mm. stage, which is not a make-it-or-break-it million-dollar play every time, I think the finest and the most creative and uh, work is done in previews very often, because it isn't until you have an audience in front of you that you learn certain things about a play. And, yeah. and, and you can make major changes. Coastal disturbances went through major changes yeah. during four weeks of previews. So the creative teams do some of their most exciting and most right. fruitful work during that
1: time. I'm just saying that years ago, it just wasn't as critical. You did a play, it didn't work, but then right. you did another play. Now, each time you do a play, it's like you've climbed a mountain. <laughs> You know?
4: well, would you ask your next question? Thank uh, you. Yes, I would we- like to, before you go away from that, to remind everybody that the opera companies and the ballet companies are not profit organizations. That's the difference. That's
3: a very important
6: point, too. Uh, yes, this question's for uh, Miss Goodman. Uh, as a very, very new independent producer, my first play goes on next week, uh, as –
4: Thank you. As
1: <laughs> uh, not? <laughs> 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 That's
6: a tough job. Uh, uh, We're trying to start a a, a theater company in the city, Mm -hmm. and uh, what would you say is uh, probably one of the the most important step in the beginning steps of uh, starting a new company?
5: A strong artistic statement, a strong vision artistically, and a good lawyer like John (laughs) Brelio to get your. Are you talking about a not-for-profit theater? Yes. Yeah. You do need a very good lawyer for that, mm-hmm. actually, because there are real guidelines you have to follow. But I think it's your artistic vision that's going to make the funders and the audiences both respond to you. That's my. And, opinion. and
3: knowledge of working in the theater.
1: <laughs> well, th-
5: I learned a lot as I went along, so don't worry about that too much.
4: <laughs> <laughs> Thank you.
1: Hi, my name is Dylan Archer, and uh, I saw Spoils last night. And uh, I hung outside the stage door, and I was listening to a lot of the conversations from the cast as they were coming out, and they were oh. discussing. Uh, oh, this scene was changed, and this line was changed. I mean, they were discussing syllables and punctuation, and how it changes from day to day. And, What's your question? Um, Please. Who decides when it's locked in? In
0: yeah. the end, I, th- I think, uh, probably, it's Austin and Michael, at the f- in the final, I, with some input from me, probably. I, I, I think that theatre is really a com- – it's, it's a committee, and it's not a committee, and it's, it's a, a work that in which everybody has to have some input into. And in the end, someone ends up having to take responsibility. So if you like it, I would give Austin and Michael the credit, and if you don't like it, give me the credit. <laughs> Thank you very much. <laughs> Boy, I escaped unscathed. <laughs> <laughs>
5: As a performer, I have a question for Robin Goodman, please. You made a statement that your play had wonderful reviews, it looked like a hit, and then Equity closed it. Oh, early on, yeah. Now, why would that be? Because I know Equity would be be so glad to keep everybody working. You would think so. (laughs) Um, We happened to stumble into a very serious argument that was taking place, which we had no idea about at the time, between the authors, the Dramatists Guild, and Actors' Equity. At the time, Actors' Equity was asking, uh, playwrights to sign a showcase code, uh, which put a lien on the play, made the playwright directly financially responsible to the actors if something happened to the play in the future, which we have since defeated because of Michael Weller, because he refused to sign that. They closed the play down, and there was a lawsuit that actually what Equity was trying to do was illegal. And, uh, uh, but it caused a great stir in the business. They were waiting for a play to open at this particular t- time in the arena, and we happened to just walk into it. And uh, Michael led a very important fight, actually, for the playwrights.
1: Thank you. Thank you. Hi, my name is Colleen Quinn, and I have a question for Peter and also for Josh. Um, how difficult is it actually to get into at and what is expected of the members who are applying to get into the union? Oh, my.
2: Why don't you, s- <laughs> why don't you say first what AT-PAM is?
1: Uh, AT-PAM <laughs> is the Association of Theatrical Press Agents and Managers. And Josh as a press agent, belongs to it. Myself, as a company manager, when I'm functioning as a company manager, I would belong to it. As a general manager, uh, uh, we we are not uh, part of the ADPAM situation. It's very difficult to get into ADPAM. um, There is, and it changes every year, there is a structure to get an apprenticeship. First, you must get into into a press agent office or into a management office. And then you must acquire an apprenticeship. I won't go into this in detail because we could be here forever. <laughs> uh, you have to get an apprenticeship, and they only take a few a year as associate managers, associate press
3: I think that's agents. That's enough of a start for you to realize how difficult it, it is. It takes a long time.
7: Please I come think, along. One thing you say Thank in its you. favor, though, and I think that you know, I served move in up. a three year apprenticeship, and I think that it was, <coughs> it was very important for me to work under people who knew how to do it and to learn from them. So the basic premise of an apprenticeship and that that system of learning Can from those who do Can you do know. that today,
3: Josh? Are there offices that will still take you in to do that?
7: Absolutely. I mean, you I have an apprentice right now, and I have somebody who wants to be an apprentice, There's and they're both great. one very important comment I'd like to make about that, is
1: that – and I tell this to all the young people coming in to interview with me for a job or to find out about a career in management in the theatre. And I say to them, yes, I said, there is this thing called AdPam to manage Broadway shows. Terrific. I said, well, what you've got to do is simply come in, learn, and go off into the world – of the theater and work, I said, because the world is too big and the jobs and opportunities are far too varied for you to say to yourself that if I get into AdPAN, my life is made, and if I don't, I have no future. I mean, that's just dumb. I mean, one guy who worked for us is now uh, in charge of marketing for Theater Works? Uh, mm-hmm. Theater Works. Uh, Tony
5: Stimax?
1: Yeah. No, no. Oh, um, oh, uh, the uh, Children's Chil- 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 uh, Group. Jay Hornick's Organization. Another one went to uh, manage the Goodspeed Opera House in Connecticut. So there is a, a lot of very satisfying and very important non union work available.
3: Thank you. There's time for just one more question. Hi, my name is
6: Dennis Dean, and I'm producing a, a play at a, a mini contract called What About Love down on the Noho Playhouse. And because of the rising expense, is it possible to reverse it and go to a not for profit theater, Robin Goodman, and, and work with them to? get it going, because good things are coming with the play artistically?
5: Well, you probably couldn't get it on in my theatre, because Mm -hmm. we don't take packages in. The whole fun of producing is putting it together and choosing the play, then the director, and then the other artistic elements. (laughs) But there are theatres in New York that take packages. In fact, there's some not-for-profit theatres that take plays from commercial producers and do Uh them. So there are places to go for that. You just have to investigate. You talk to Rob and I. Find out <laughs> one more question, please. John probably could take it. Uh, yes, uh, this is probably to David. Uh, what steps would you recommend to someone like myself who would like to get involved in producing, but uh, don't, I don't know where to
0: begin?
1: <laughs> <laughs> Thirty money. seconds or less. <laughs>
0: um, I'm, I'm going to give it to somebody else. Because How a checkbook? No.
3: <laughs> <laughs> I think that's a very difficult question to answer well, in the short I, 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 I time that we give have. a really
1: short answer. Initially, to get a job in a management or a very active, uh, either a general manager's office or a very active producer's office, and spend a year or two there Apprentice. just to hear what's going on.
3: I think that's a very, very interesting que- answer to that question. And so there are so many more questions that are yet to be answered and so many more things to talk about, but unfortunately, it's drawing to a, a close, and, and I have to once more apologize for for interrupting and, and not having enough time to go further with this wonderful panel of people who have come here today and have shared their time and their knowledge with us. Uh, These are the producers of Spoils of War, a marvelous play, and I hope that we will all be privileged to see it and tell our friends how good it is. This is coming to you from the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. It's the American Theatre Wing service. It's an American Theatre Wing program, one of the many year-round programs. Everyone talks about the coveted prestigious award, the Tony Awards, but behind that, there is an awful lot of good work that's being done.